Okay, well, please turn with me in your books to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you how it gives us instructions, Lord, it gives us the teachings that we need, Lord, that we might know your will, and that we might do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us today as we continue to examine this passage. Lord, that you would make it very clear to us and obvious and plain as to its meaning. Lord, so that we might arrive at a unity of faith, Lord, and an understanding of what your word is teaching and what it expects of each and every one of us. So, Lord, teach us today and help us to believe and to obey your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this passage where the apostle is teaching about the distinctions between men and women in terms of authority, right? In terms of authority, the roles that God has established, right? He's teaching that there are men and women, right? And there are one role for the men and another role for the women. We remember that the apostle taught that there is a succession of authority and submission all rooted ultimately in the authority of God and dispersed according to the order that God has established in this world. God the Father, he says, is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and then the man is the head of a woman. This is the structure of authority that has been established by God so that in relationship to mankind, right, in the home, in the church, in society, the man is to have authority over the woman, and the woman is to be in submission to the man. The man is to exercise his legitimate authority by submitting himself to the will of Christ, by searching the scriptures that he might know and understand the will of Christ, and then himself obeying the will of Christ, and then teaching his wife, his children, his family to also obey the will of Christ. The woman shows her righteousness by understanding her own weakness, by understanding the role that she's been given by God, and receiving with joy the good instruction the good authority of her husband and not kicking against that and resisting it. This is the first order of business that has been established in this passage, a laying down of a foundation of authority and submission in relationship to men and women. The man in the position of authority, the woman in the position of submission. That was verse 3. Now because of this truth, then it is necessary for the men and the women to adorn themselves in the assembly according to the position that has been granted to each by God. That is what we looked at last week in verses 4 to 6. The man is not to pray or prophesy with his head covered. 
Otherwise, the apostle says, he brings disgrace to his authoritative head, that is, to Christ. The man has been given the position of authority. The man is not under the authority of the woman. Therefore, he should pray and prophesy with his head uncovered, not under anything, right? Symbolizing that he has been given this position by God. It has been granted to him by Christ, and it is a reminder to him that he needs to take his responsibilities very seriously. The woman, on the other hand, he said, is not to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, lest she bring disgrace upon her authoritative head, that is, upon her husband. The woman in the position of submission, she is to be under her husband, and she shows her position by praying and prophesying with her head covered. Now, in order to drive this point home, the apostle compared a woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered, he says, is one in the same as the woman whose head is shaved, right? Which is a very shameful condition for any woman to have to endure or undergo. So he said, if a woman will not cover her head, then she ought to have her head shaved. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to have her head shaved, then what was the proper solution? He says, then let her have her hair covered while praying or prophesying. This is where we left off last week at verse 6. So today we'll pick up in verse 7 where the apostle is going to give further justification for why it is that men should pray and prophesy with head uncovered and why it is that women should pray and prophesy with a covered head. So let's go to verse 7. Verse 7 says, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Here the apostle first states that man is the image and glory of God, and that because man is the image and glory of God, then the man should not have his head covered while praying and prophesying. The woman, in contrast, he says, is the glory of man. And because the woman is the glory of man, then the woman ought to pray and prophesy with her head covered. So here the issue is that of glory. He's talking about two different glories when we gather together. There is the glory of God and there is the glory of man. The man, he says, is the glory of God. The woman, he says, is the glory of man. And since the purpose of our gathering together, the purpose of the assembling of the saints is to worship God. It is to highlight, to emphasize the glory and honor of God. Therefore, the glory of God should be displayed while the glory of man should be concealed. That's the argument he's making here. This is why the man should be uncovered. The man is the glory of God. Therefore, the glory of God should be seen in the public assembly. This is why the woman should be covered. She is the glory of man. Therefore, that glory should be hidden or concealed so that God's glory and God's glory alone is being promoted and being seen in the worship of God. Now, of course, he means this symbolically, right? In terms of symbol, in terms of the order of creation, that's what he's talking about here. But it is a symbol, it is something that we see, and in the assembly, it is to be the glory of God that is being put on display. Now we have to ask, what does he mean by this? Right? What does he mean by making this distinction between man being the glory of God and woman being the glory of man? Well, he cannot mean that women were not created by God. He cannot mean that women do not possess the image of God. So he's not talking about the essential nature of a woman, that the nature of a woman and the nature of a man are different, right? That they have a different essence or that they are of somehow inferior in terms of their humanity to men, right? This is certainly not the case. And it is not the case that men bear the image of God and women do not bear the image of God. Let's see this from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll read verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, verse 26. 
says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created man in his own image, but then he extends that to both male and female. Both male and female were created by God, and both male and female bear the image of God. They possess the image of God. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis 5, verse 1. says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So here, again, in these passages, he's both making a distinction, but he's also putting them together, right? There is a distinction in that they're called man, right? They're not called the couple. They're not called humans. They're not called anything like that. They're called after the man, but they're also created both male and female, and they both possess the image of God. So then the question remains, why is it then, in what way is man the glory of God, and then in what way is woman called the glory of man? And I think this has relation to three different things, three different things. First, the order of creation. Secondly, the source of creation. And then third, the purpose of creation. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 teaches the first two. Verse 8 says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Right? The man did not originate from the woman, but the woman did originate from the man. Right? In terms of the order of creation, who came first? Was man created first, or was the woman created first, or were they created simultaneously? Well, it's obvious from the reading of Genesis 1 and 2 that the man was created first. God first created the man. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into the man the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then it was some time afterwards that God created the woman. Right? It wasn't at the same time. It wasn't simultaneously. It was after the creation of the man. So God made a distinction between the man and the woman when he created the woman. He did not create her from the dust as he did the man. But instead, he took a rib from the man and then created the woman from the man. And that's what he means here when he says that the man did not originate from the woman, but the woman did originate from the man, right? It was impossible for the man to originate from the woman because she had not been created yet. She did not exist yet. God had not yet formed her whenever he created the man. So man was created independently of the woman, but the woman had her creation dependent upon the man. Now, again, of course, this does not mean that the woman originated from the man independently of the will of God or independently of the work of God. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the order of creation. And in terms of the order of creation, in terms of the source of creation, man was created first and man was created independently of the woman. Then the woman was created second and she was created in dependence on the man because she was created out of the man, right? Out of the man and all of this according to the will of God and by the work and power of God. The man was both created first and the man became the source, the material used by God to create the woman came out of the man so that she has her origin from the man, right? She came out of him. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll read verses 15 to 25. Genesis chapter 2, and let's pick up in verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. For the Lord God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we clearly see that man was created prior to the woman. And there was some period of time when the man existed and the woman did not exist, right? When he was there in the world for a period of time without the woman. So he was created prior to the woman, and then the woman was created subsequent to him, and she was created out of him, right? The source of her origin came out of the body of the man so that the woman can be said to originate from the man. God did this intentionally. Could God have created both of them at the same time? Could he have formed both of them out of the dust at the same time and breathed into them the breath of life at the exact same time? He could have done that simultaneously, but he didn't do it that way. God did it this way on purpose, right? For a reason to teach and to show that there is a distinction, yes, a distinction between men and women, between male and female. Men are not women, and women are not men. I know it may be a shocking revelation in our own current corrupt generation, but this is the case. There is a distinction between men and women, and there is a proper order that is to be maintained in this present world in relationship to men and women. The man did not originate from the woman, but she did originate from him. This is why the Bible speaks of one source for all mankind, that every single person, whether male or female, all of them come from whom? They all come from Adam. All of humanity, all of mankind has one source from one single man, that is Adam. Not one couple, right, but one man. For even Eve, who is the mother of all the living, even she came out of the man. She was formed from him. We see this in a couple of passages. First, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In teaching and establishing original sin. Original sin. This is what the apostle teaches. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. So there it's from one man. From one man sinned entered into the world. And who is that one man that he's talking about? He's talking about Adam. Now certainly the woman was there. And certainly she was involved in what took place. But the blame here for sin entering into the world is not put on the woman. But rather it's put on the man. That he was the representative of all mankind including his wife, including the woman. So he doesn't say that sin entered the world through one couple. He says sin entered the world through one man, through one single man, and that is because Eve herself, the woman, had her origin from the man. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So there, again, the first man, Adam, became a life or became a living soul. Right? Not the first couple, but the first man, Adam. He was created first. And then just as Adam was of the dust of the earth, so also all of those born from Adam, including his wife Eve, are also bear his likeness and are also from the earth. So the woman originated from the man and was created by God after the man and from the body of man. Right? This is what he means when he says man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. When we look at creation, right, we are to see and acknowledge and understand that the glory of God exists in creation, in the world that God has created. Right? We know Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The heavens are proclaiming the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars, all of them are declaring the handiwork of God, right? And when we look at these things, when we observe them, we are to see and acknowledge and recognize the glory of God. Well, if these heavenly beings proclaim the glory of God, and those heavenly beings are not created in the image of God, then how much more does man, mankind, declare the glory of God? For only of men is it said that they were created in the image of God. This is not true of any other part of creation. Only of mankind is it said that they bear the image of God. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. But in terms of mankind, both male and female, the man, the male, in a particular way, communicates the glory of God because he was created first. He came before the woman. And then God shared his glory with the man in the creation of the woman by forming her out of the man. Again, God could have created the woman out of the ground. He could have created her out of a tree, a flower, a star, a butterfly, a dolphin, right? God had the entire creation at his disposal at that time, and he could have formed the woman out of any part of his creation, but who did God choose to create her out of? He chose intentionally to create her out of the man, which gives some glory to man, right? Not glory independent of God, but God communicates some of his glory to the man because something so wonderful, right? So good, so beautiful, so necessary for the well-being and for the happiness of the man to come out of him, for God to meet his greatest need out of his own body, for his helper to arise out of him. In this way, the woman is the glory of man. Not that, again, the woman was created independently or, or independently of God. Adam didn't create the woman. We know that that's not the case. God created the woman but God used the man to create her, and God says because of that, she is the glory of man. She shows the glory of man because she came out of him. So the woman is man's glory, for she was created out of him, while the man is God's glory, for he was created from the dust independently of her. So though both man and woman are created by God, and though both of them possess the image of God, the manner in which each was created is different. And in this distinction made between male and female, in one way man is the glory of God, and in another way the woman is the glory of man. And so we ought to recognize this distinction in the way that we adorn ourselves, in the way that we dress 
that we dress in a proper way. Right? Don't we know and understand this? That men should dress one way and women should dress another way? That they shouldn't be a conflating of these things? So that when you see a man, you know that he's a man? in the way that he dresses, in the way that he conducts himself, in the way that he speaks, in the way that he behaves. And when you see a woman, you know that she's a woman in the way that she dresses and conducts herself, in the way that she speaks and behaves. And God even pronounces an abomination on those men who dress like women or women who dress like men. It is an abomination in the sight of God, though in our own present generation, it is being praised and lauded out in the culture, in society, as something that is good and wonderful. But it's not. It's actually detestable in the sight of God, and it's disgusting. And everyone knows that it is, right? They have to convince themselves that it's not and try to tell you and me that it's not, when in fact everyone knows that it is not right and proper for a man to behave like a woman, nor is it right and proper for a woman to behave like a man. This is common law. This is common understanding. It is natural law woven within the fabric of the creation as it comes from God. Men should behave like men. Women should behave like women. Men should dress like men. Women like women. Man is the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. Therefore, in the worship of God, only God's glory should be seen. And since the man is the glory of God, he should be uncovered so that the glory of God shines forth in the assembly. He should not have something over his head. Since the woman is the glory of man, then she should be concealed. She should be covered in this symbolic way by having something on her head so that God's glory and God's glory alone is seen. Verse 9. Verse 9, the third reason. The first is the order, secondly the source, and then third, the purpose. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. A third reason as to why the woman is the glory of man. Right? Another reason for the man's position over the woman. Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman was created for the man's sake. This is as we read earlier from Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God provides a helper, someone to assist, to help the man. She was created to be the helper for the man. He wasn't created to be her helper. She was created to be his helper. And then in verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. He gave her to the man to be his helper, to assist him, to work alongside him, but under his authority and under his direction. Again, in this way, there's a difference. There's a distinction. The man has a different glory as compared to the woman. She was created for him to be a helper suitable for him. Thus, the man should have preeminence in the relationship. God created the man. God gave the man the mandate. And then God created the woman to come alongside the man to help him fulfill what God had commanded him and entrusted him to do. So you have these three reasons. Why it is that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. The first is the order of creation. Man was created first, and then the woman was created second. Secondly, you have the source of creation. The woman was created from the man, not independently from him, but she was created from him or through him. And then the purpose of creation. The woman was created for his sake. He wasn't created for her sake. She was created for him. Because of these things, then the man should have authority in the relationship, and the man should display the glory of God that is upon him. While the woman is to be in submission to the man, and she displays the glory of man. And that's nothing for women to be ashamed of. That is something that they should take great joy and delight in, that they are the glory of their husbands, that they are the glory of their fathers. An obedient, submissive wife or daughter brings great glory and honor to her head. And that in turn brings glory to who? 
then it brings glory to Christ, and it brings glory to God the Father. So it's not something for us to revolt against, to hate, to be upset about, and say this isn't right or fair. No, all of this is good. It's good because it brings glory and honor to God. Creation shows a clear distinction between the man and the woman as it relates to authority and as it relates to, to glory, to, to glory, both of these things. So now we come to verse 10. He gives another reiteration for the need for a woman to wear a symbol of authority on her head. Verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. There he says, therefore, right? Because of what he just stated, right? The woman is the glory of man, right? The woman originated from the man, The woman was created for the sake of man, right? Because these things are true, therefore, right? As a result of these truths, because of these truths, then the woman, he says, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Here, again, we're talking about a symbol, a symbolic covering, a cloth covering over the head of the woman. He's not talking about the natural covering, that we'll get to in a, next week or the week after in verse 15, right? That is the hair of the woman is a natural covering. We're not talking about a natural covering here. What covering is he talking about? He's talking about a symbolic covering, a symbol of authority. The hair is the natural covering. The veil or the cloth is the symbolic covering. Because the woman is to be in submission to the man, And because she is the glory of man, then she ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, a couple of points here for clarification. First, it is worth pointing out again that the justification, the reasoning that he's giving for the symbol of authority for the head covering is not rooted in Corinthian culture. It's not rooted in the culture of the ancient world. It's not rooted in any custom that was created by man. What is he always going back to to prove these things? What is it based upon? It's based on creation. Isn't that what he's talking about here all throughout this passage? That the woman, the man doesn't originate from woman, woman originates from man? That man wasn't created for woman, woman was created for man? Well, where do we go back to learn these things? What we've been reading, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. So these are ordinances that go back to creation. They go and they have their founding from creation. Where in this passage does the apostle ever mention the customs of the ancient world, the customs of Corinth, the customs of the Greek world, right? He doesn't mention these things at all. He's always going back to creation, The way that God created the man and the woman. The order, the source, the purpose at creation. So if the symbol is rooted in the truths of creation, then the symbol is binding so long as the truths are binding. So long as those theological truths that they're founded upon are still in play. So was it true in Corinth in the first century that man did not originate from the woman but woman from man. Is that true in Corinth in the first century? Absolutely. Was it true in that time that man was not created for woman, but woman was created for man? Yes, of course, that is absolutely true. But for who else is that true? It's true for everyone. Everyone who has ever lived from the beginning of time to the end of time. Are these truths of creation still true today? Is it still the case today in the 21st century America that the woman was created after the man? That the woman was created from the man and that the woman was created for the man? Of course it's true. We just read that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. All of these truths are still true today, even in modern America. So if these truths are still true which how can a truth cease to be true, right? That doesn't even make any sense, right? But this is the type of nonsense people believe today. But these things we know, these things are true. Then the implications of these truths, the results of these truths, the symbol that expresses these truths outwardly 
is still binding as well. So long as the truth is binding, the symbol is binding. So the argument that the head covering was cultural was for Greek women or was a way of distinguishing the difference between a prostitute and someone who's not a prostitute or a virgin from someone uh, who is married, right? It has no basis in the text of Scripture. It's not here and it's not found anywhere else as, as well. People just make it out of thin air because they don't want to have to practice these things. They want to find a way to wiggle out from what the Bible is actually teaching. Secondly, the head covering is called here a symbol of authority, a symbol. It is to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. That's what we have to understand when we're dealing with symbols. There is the symbol, and then there is the thing that it symbolizes. The symbol is a visible, physical, outward manifestation of something that is unseen, that is invisible, that is a spiritual truth. So when it comes to these things, the symbol and the thing symbolized, the greater component is always the thing symbolized. The thing symbolized is the greater component than the symbol itself. So it is not enough that a woman simply wears a head covering, but they must live in accordance to what the covering symbolizes. And if they don't live in accordance to what it symbolizes, then it's hypocrisy. It's all for vain. It's a vain show that is of no value and no benefit whatsoever. First Peter chapter three. So what does it symbolize? First Peter chapter three. First Peter three, verse one. It says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. So there, the adornment is not merely external. Not merely external. Here, he's talking about those things that women do to beautify themselves. He's saying it shouldn't be merely external. He's not excluding it and saying that a woman should not do anything to make herself look presentable or her appearance. He's saying it's not merely external because a woman who's beautiful on the outside but on the inside is hideous, right? That's no good at all. That's like a gold ring in the snout of a pig. That's from Proverbs, right? It's not good, right? It's gold, it's precious, it's beautiful, but it's in a pig snout. And this is the way it is with a beautiful woman who lacks virtue. In the same way, so it would be with a woman who wears a head covering, but who is unsubmissive, who has a rebellious spirit, who is a loudmouth, who resists and constantly contradicts and speaks back and always resists those in authority. This would be a contradiction, right? What is the covering to symbolize? The hidden person, the hidden person of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit, joyful submission to her husband, right? A woman who wears a covering, but who does not have the corresponding virtues that the symbol represents is a hypocrite and an utter contradiction, just as it is with the man, who doesn't wear a covering, but then he doesn't lead his family. He doesn't take initiative. He doesn't exercise proper authority. He's not teaching his wife and children the word of God. Well, in what way is he any authority at all? He isn't at all. He's not taking those things. He's not taking them seriously. It's a contradiction. It is hypocrisy. So the symbol must have the corresponding reality. And this is always true in regards to symbols. The symbol and what it symbolizes are both, they go hand in hand. The symbol without the reality is worthless. Isn't this true with circumcision, as it's so often spoken of in the Old Testament? 
they put their hope in circumcision, meaning they put their hope in the physical circumcision. But what was the more important part? The physical or the circumcision of the heart, right? To be physically circumcised without having your heart circumcised, does that do you any good at all? Is that going to get you into heaven? Does that make you pleasing in the sight of God? Of course not. What about water baptism? Is water baptism taught in the Bible? Yes, of course it is. Should we get baptized upon our profession of faith in Christ? Yes, of course we should. But will water baptism save us if we're not baptized into the Holy Spirit? If we're not baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a symbolic way, in an invisible, in a spiritual way? No, it won't do us any good at all. What about taking the Lord's Supper? Eating the bread and drinking the wine during the Lord's Supper. Are we supposed to do those things? Is it commanded to us by God? Yes, of course it is. But is simply, merely eating those elements and drinking that element, is that going to do us any good if we do not by faith partake of what it symbolizes? The body and the blood of Christ. The symbol without the reality is useless. So the thing symbolized is the weightier matter of the law. It is the more important component. However, at the same time, that does not negate or lessen the importance of the symbol. Because who's the one that instituted the symbol? God. And whatever God says, we ought to obey. We ought to do everything that God says. So we ought to follow both the symbol and follow what it represents. Both of those things should be true in our lives. And we can't say, well, all that matters is that women are submissive. That's all that matters. That's the more important part. So let's just focus on that and not worry about symbols. Well, yes, we should focus on that, but should we neglect the other? No, because both of them are taught in the Bible. So we should speak of both of them and understand them rightly, how they relate to one another, and seek to practice everything that is found in the law and the prophets. Matthew 23. This is not my interpretation, but this is the interpretation of Christ. This is the way he viewed and looked at the Bible. Matthew 23, verse 23. 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Right, in terms of the weightier provisions of the law. Is tithing, mint, dill, and cumin, or justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which is the weightier provision of the law? Well, according to Jesus, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But does Jesus just say, just focus on justice, justice mercy, and faithfulness, and don't worry about tithing? No. He says, these things you should have done, you should be tithing on mint, dill, and cumin, but you should not be neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You ought to do all of it. You should tithe, and you should do these things. You should do everything taught in the Word of God. Also, the neglect of symbols can lead to the judgment of God. There are examples in the Bible when people neglected the symbol and they came under the judgment of God. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, verse 24. It says, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This being Moses. The Lord met Moses and the Lord sought to put Moses to death as Moses is leaving the land of Midian and returning back to the land of Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of their bondage to slavery. Now, why? Why is God seeking to put Moses to death? Verse 25, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So we let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What had Moses failed to do living in the land of Midian? 
Well, he had a son, but he didn't circumcise his son. Though God had already taught this. And Moses knew that he was supposed to do that, but he had failed to do so. Now he's going back to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out to establish them in the worship of God, in the obedience to God, when he himself has neglected to be obedient in this issue of circumcision. Now we might say, well, it's just circumcision. It's just a symbol. But what did God seek to do to him here? He sought to put him to death. Then his wife had to do what he should have done. What he should have done, she had to do, and that's why she threw it at him and told him, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I shouldn't have to be doing this. You should have already done it, and that's right. He should have done it. He didn't, but God sought to put him to death. Also, weren't the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, put to death in relation to the improper use of symbols, right? Offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. Wasn't Uzzah put to death when he reached up to steady the Ark of the Covenant and he put his hand on it? And the Ark is merely a symbol. It only represents symbolically some spiritual truth in heaven. Yet God put him to death. So the judgment of God can come to people whenever they fail to use the symbols properly. Isn't that also the case in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? When he talks about the Lord's Supper and the way that they're partaking of the Lord's Supper, what does he say to them? That the judgment of God is coming upon them. Some of them are sick and others have died because they're taking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Well, it's just a symbol, right? So what does it matter? It matters because who instituted the symbol? God ordained it, and whatever God ordains, we ought to partake of with seriousness. We ought to follow exactly what God has told us to do. And this would be true as well with the head covering or with the symbol of authority that he's speaking of here. Also, we should ask, for whose benefit is the symbol? Is the symbol for God's benefit or is it for our benefit? Why does God give symbols to the church, to his people, right? It's not for his benefit. It is for us. It is for our benefit, for our sake, to help us to bolster our faith so that we might see something. He knows that we're weak. He knows our weaknesses. So he gives us these visible symbols to teach us spiritual hidden realities, and he teaches us by way of object lesson, right? Just as we do with children often. We have to teach them by way of objects, by way of object lessons. And so God also instructs us in many times and in many ways. He teaches us with these types of object lessons, with illustrations, because it helps us in our faith. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are dust. And so he helps us in these things. He gives the symbols for us, for our sake. Notice 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 23, this speaking of the Lord's Supper, but it would also be true in this case as well, or of any symbol. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there, again, the cup and the bread are symbols teaching us, symbolizing to us the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And we are to do them, right, as a reminder in remembrance of Christ. They cause us to remember what Christ has done for us. So the Lord has established these symbols in order to publicly display the proper order of roles of authority in the church. Right? That God would do this should not be shocking to us. It shouldn't be something that is out in the blue, that is crazy, that is insane, that God would establish some symbol to teach the proper relationship of men and women within the church. And it's a benefit for everyone. It's a benefit for both the men and the women. To neglect the symbol is to be detrimental to our own faith and to our own Christian life. The head covering is not just for the women. It is beneficial for the men as well. Because when the men see the covering, 
then it reminds the men that they need to man up, that they need to act like men, that they need to be strong and they need to be courageous and they need to fulfill their mandate and do what God has called them to do, to lead and to protect, to pastor, to shepherd their families, their wife, their children, to lead them into the fear of the Lord. It is the man's responsibility to be the provider of the home, to be the protector of the home, and to be the pastor of the home. He is to fulfill these duties. And whenever he sees the head covering, it is a reminder, because he's not wearing one, that he needs to take his duty seriously and be faithful to the Lord and faithful to his family. And it's a reminder for the women as well, for them to remember their own weakness, for them to remember why they were created, right? To be a helper for the man, for them to remember that it was not the man who was deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and who became a transgressor, and that they are not to exercise authority over the man, but are to remain in their proper place. So the covering is a benefit for everyone in the church, for it serves as a visible outward symbol for each person to fulfill the role assigned to them by God. Then lastly, there in verse 10, not only is it an issue for us, but also, he says, because of the angels. Also because of the angels. Now, what does he mean by this, right? Why is he, again, he's talking about the woman should have the symbol of authority, right? Because of these reasons that he's mentioned, right? She did not originate, uh, the man did not originate from her. She originated from the man. The man was not created for her. She was created for the man, right? She ought to have the symbol because of these things. But here also, he says, because of the angels. Now, what we must understand and see is that when we gather together for worship, there are unseen spiritual beings who observe everything that we do, right? We know and understand that there is more to this life than the body. There is more to this life than clothing. There is more than just the physical, visible, outside world. There is also the spiritual world. There is the invisible world. There is that which is spiritual and which is unseen. And there are myriads and myriads of angels. And there are also demons. And there is spiritual warfare that is taking place. Because our battle is not with flesh and blood, is it? Who is our battle ultimately with? It is with principalities, with powers. It is with spiritual forces. It is with Satan and his demons and wicked men. Right? All of them together, a cabal against God. And that's who we're waging war against. Not merely wicked men, but also those unseen spiritual forces that are behind them. And just as there are demons and evil spirits, there are also good spirits. There are holy spirits in the sense of angels. Angels, spiritual beings that are here for our benefits, that are there for our sake. And these angels are observing us. They are observing us. And what is the most important thing that we do as a church? It's when we gather together to worship God. So are they very concerned and involved in what's taking place even today? What's taking a place when we gather together to worship? So the apostle is reminding the church that they are not alone in their worship of God. Though angels are not seen, typically, right, because they are spiritual beings, though they can manifest themselves, and there are times in the Bible when angels would visibly manifest themselves, such as to the shepherds when they announced the birth of Christ, such as to Mary when it was announced to, uh, to her of the birth of Christ. Also at the resurrection, there were angels there talking to the women and there to the disciples. But typically this is rare. It's uncommon for this to be the case. Commonly, angels are unseen. But does that mean they're not with us? Does that mean that they're not present? Does that mean that they do not observe what is going on? Wasn't that the case with Elisha whenever he was in the city and his servant was distraught because the army, the foreign army, had surrounded the city? And Elisha said that there's more for us than there is with them. And then God opened the servant's eyes and what did he see? Many, many chariots of fire, angels that were surrounding the army. Right, It was there for him. Well, is that just the case then? Or is that still the case today? 
It's still the case today. There is a spiritual world, and when we gather for worship, angels are gathering with us. Right? When we gather, earth and heaven are joining together to worship God, and they observe what we do. We do not want the angels to observe worship that is out of order. Right? When the proper roles of men and women are not being observed according to the will of God, do we want something shameful to be manifested and to be seen by the angels? And the answer is no. A couple of passages, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And also, we have to remember, when we're speaking of angels, we're not talking about cute, cuddly, little teddy bears, little babies with wings, you know, as they're often depicted uh, in uh, modern uh, worthless art or whatever. But the angels in the Bible, when people see an angel in the Bible, what do they always do? They're terrified. They think they're going to die. They think they're going to die. They are terrifying beings because of their holiness and because of, of what they are. So they're not innocent, cute, little, cuddly teddy bears. They are terrifying beings that are there when people see them. But notice Hebrews 1 verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here in contrasting Jesus Christ with angels and showing that Jesus is greater than angels, he also defines what is the purpose of the angels, the holy angels. He says they're ministering spirits. Spirit beings, ministering spirits, that are sent out by whom? By God, for what purpose? For our sake, to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are sent by God, dispatched by God, to come to help us, to aid us, to serve us, so that we will inherit the salvation that God has predestined to give us. They are there to help us Spiritually, they're not here to kill us or to harm us, but they're there for our benefit and our good. Also, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. When we worship God, where are we going? What are we drawing near to? Well, here it's Mount Zion. We're drawing near to Mount Zion where God is, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And there in the heavenly Jerusalem... He says there are myriads of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels that are there in the presence of God. The angels are righteous, heavenly beings who always do the will of God, right? Who remain in the position that has been granted to them by God. And when they are present with us, when they are observing our worship, what are they witnessing? Are they seeing men and women who understand God's creation, who understand the proper relationship of men and women, who are living according to the position granted to them by God? Right? If, as the apostle has already stated, that it is shameful for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered, and if, as the apostle has stated, that it is shameful for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, then do we want God's holy angels to witness something that is scandalous? Do we want them to see something shameful when we gather together? Do we want to expose them to shame and disgrace? Of course we don't, right? If the emissary of the king 
was dispatched to go observe the conduct of the people, then shouldn't the people be on their best behavior? So that when the emissary sees them, he can report back to his superior, report back to his king about the good conduct of the people that were there? Well, in the same way, we want our conduct to be pleasing to God. We don't want to do anything to God that is shameful before him. And his angels are here with us, that they are observing what we are doing, and we don't want to do those things that are shameful before the angels of God. So a man should not pray or prophesy with his head covered, and the woman should not pray or prophesy with her hair uncovered. Also, this is an important issue for the angels, that one remain in his domain. Because what happened to one-third of the angels? Did they not fall into sin? And why did those angels fall into sin? Doesn't it have to do with authority and submission? They were not content with the position given to them by God, and they sought something that was forbidden from them. Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They're the fallen angels, the unholy angels, the demons, who at creation were created good by God. At creation, they were holy angels, but what happened to them? They did not remain in their own domain. They were not content with the position that God granted to them, but they were rebellious, they were seditious, and they revolted against God. And that is what happened with Satan and the demons, right? It has everything to do with authority and submission. So this is an issue that is near and dear to the hearts of angels, because their brothers fell from their righteous state to an unrighteous state because they were not submissive. They were not content with what God had given to them. And we don't want to offend the angels in that way. So for these reasons then, men should pray and prophesy with their head uncovered and the women should pray and prophesy with their head covered. Typically, all people care about are the opinions of men. What do people think about me? What will people say about me, right? What is the view that people have of me? And yes, there is a place for that, in its proper order, in its proper turn. But first and foremost, who should we be concerned about? We should always be concerned, first and foremost, what does God think about me? What does God say about my conduct? Is my conduct pleasing to God? That should be what's first on our mind. But here also, what do the angels think about me? When the angels observe me, the way I live, the way I conduct myself, what is the view that the holy angels have of me? But then also, What about the righteous? Not the wicked, right? What do we care about what they they think about us? What do the righteous think about me? What do those who fear God and who walk in his ways, what do they think about me? Well, if we conduct ourselves properly when we gather for worship, if we adorn ourselves in the proper way, showing the difference between male and female, then will God think highly of us? Yes. Will the holy angels think highly of us? Yes. Will the righteous think highly of us? Yes, because we're doing the will of God. So because of these reasons then, the men should pray and prophesy with their head uncovered, while the women should pray and prophesy with their head covered. This is the argument that he's making here, and we'll continue next week. We'll pick up in verse 11 as he continues unfolding this argument of the basis for this symbol, this practice within the church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing, Lord, that you are the one who sees and knows all things. And that, Lord, even right now, this very moment, Lord, nothing is hidden from your sight, but all things are bare and visible to the one to whom we must give an account. Lord, we may be able to fool men. Lord, we may be able to disguise who we are and what we do, Lord, before the eyes of men, but we cannot fool you. 
Lord, we cannot disguise ourselves in such a way as to trick you. Lord, you see and you know all things. And Lord, may that be a reminder to us, Lord, not only when we gather together, but Lord, every second of every day of our life. Lord, keep that in our mind, that you are observing all that we do and that there's nothing that is hidden from your sight. Lord, we know that you are here with us today. Lord, that you, your presence is here with us, that, Lord, you are observing what we do. Lord, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ, who is at your right hand, his eyes are a flaming fire, and he sees all things. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is here with us as well. And, Lord, according to our passage, we know that the holy angels are observing what is taking place too. So, Lord, may we have it in our mind that what we do when we gather together, Lord, it does not just have relation to this present life. Lord, though it does happen here and now in time and space, and Lord, we are physical beings and we are gathering in a physical place at a certain time to worship you. But Lord, when we do this, Lord, heaven and earth are joining together, both the physical, visible world and the spiritual and invisible world, Lord, are joining together, Lord, to do that most great and glorious of things, to praise you, Lord, to bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, we don't want to do what is shameful in your sight. Lord, we want to do what's pleasing to you. And Lord, we know so clearly from the passage we're studying and from many others that you have created man, both male and female. That, Lord, you have created us in a certain way, in a certain order, with a certain purpose. Lord, I pray that you would give to the men, Lord, great conviction concerning their role and the responsibility that you have laid at their feet. Lord, how shall we escape if we neglect, Lord, to do what you've called us to do? Lord, to lead our families, to teach our wives and our children the fear of the Lord. Lord, you have entrusted them to us, to our care. And so, Lord, we are to be faithful, Lord, to teach them, Lord, to instruct them in the will of Christ. Lord, as well, you have created the woman to be a helper to the man. And Lord, we pray that our women would not follow the women of this world, Lord, who hate authority, they hate submission, Lord, they, they hate what your word teaches, but Lord, may our women see that it is, it is her glory, Lord, to bring glory to her husband. Lord, it is her glory to bring glory to you by living a gentle and a quiet and a submissive life. Lord, to, to be submissive to her husband, Lord, to love and to raise her children, to care and to provide for them. Lord, that this is not some second-class role for women. Lord, this is what you have created them to do. And Lord, you will honor the woman. And so will her husband and so will her children. They will all honor her, Lord, who fulfills what you have called them to do. So Lord, may what we believe and what we practice in this church and in our homes, Lord, be a great contrast a stark contrast, Lord, to what is taking place in our present world. And Lord, we pray that our light would shine before men, Lord, that they might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So Lord, we pray that you would uh, cause these things to be true of us, and Lord, that we would walk in your ways, and that all that we do would be pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.